Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now an opportunity for Saudi Arabia. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. As the World Cup kicks off in Qatari capital Doha, we're going to talk today about politics in the Gulf. Anyone who's been following the first week of the football will know that maybe the biggest surprise so far has been Saudi Arabia's defeat of World Cup favourites Argentina, prompting celebration not just in Saudi Arabia, but also across other Arab countries. The Saudi win followed a World Cup opening ceremony in which powerful Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, sat next to his Qatari host, the Emir Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, or Sheikh Tamim. The Gulf Corporation Council crisis, which just a few years ago saw the Saudis and the Emiratis break diplomatic relations with and blockade Qatar, this week all that looked like ancient history. But if the World Cup marks a time of warming relations in the Gulf, it comes at a trickier time for Saudi relations with Washington. It's fair to say that Saudi-US relations have been on a bit of a roller coaster during US President Joe Biden's tenure. This is Biden on the campaign trail three years ago. I said it at the time, Khashoggi was in fact murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the Crown Prince. And I would make it very clear, we were not going to in fact sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. That sort of language could easily be dismissed as campaign bluster, but it showed the depth of anger in the U.S. at the Saudi crown prince. Shortly after coming to office, the Biden administration released an intelligence report explicitly blaming Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of the journalist that Biden was talking about, Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed in a Saudi consulate in Turkey. Then came the Ukraine war, however, and that forced a reversal and attempt to repair relations. President Biden visited the Gulf over this past summer, famously fist bumping the crown prince, seemingly motivated mostly by getting more Saudi oil onto the markets to keep prices down. And then 
Just a few weeks ago, a decision from the OPEC Plus group of oil producers led by Saudi Arabia provoked yet more fury in Washington. The White House says a decision by OPEC Plus to cut oil production is a clear sign the group is aligning with Russia. The oil cartel led by Saudi Arabia announced a cut of 2 million barrels per day, the biggest such slash in production since the start of the pandemic. The decision will likely lead to higher gas prices at the pump. So have Gulf countries really put their differences behind them? And what does the future hold for Washington's relations with Riyadh, and especially with the Crown Prince, who looks like he's going to be around for some time? So to talk about all this, I'm happy to welcome onto the podcast Joost Hilterman, who is Crisis Group's Middle East North Africa Director, and to welcome back Dina Asfandiari, who is Senior Advisor to the Middle East North Africa Programme. Joost, Dina, welcome on. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure. So we will come over the course of the conversation to, of course, relations between Saudi Arabia and the US. But I want to start with the World Cup. So first you had the Emir of Qatar, Sheikh Tamim, sitting next to Mohammed bin Salman in the opening ceremony. From what I understand, I mean, you can tell me if this is wrong, general scenes of joy across the Arab world at the Saudi team bucking all expectations to beat the favourites Argentina. So is the World Cup a sign of how far things have come since the GCC spat? Formerly, the Alula agreement in January 2021 ended that, but is that now all behind them? I don't think it's all behind them, but it's certainly a very, very good step towards an improvement in relations. As you mentioned, a lot of the other heads of the other GCC countries came to Qatar for the opening of the World Cup game. There's a real sentiment, a real feeling of joint ownership of the World Cup. Many people in the region are calling it a Gulf World Cup, not just a Qatari one. They've had to work together to establish shuttle flights between each other so that fans could travel in and out of Doha more easily. They've had to up their communication with one another, with the heads of state visiting each other throughout the last few months. So differences among them definitely remain, particularly among the Emiratis and the Qataris. But generally, the World Cup has been pretty good in terms of helping them get over some of those differences. And I mean, to what degree is Qatar sort of framing the World Cup as, as this sort of bringing people together? I mean, I mentioned just a moment ago, so the emir sat next to Mohammed bin Salman in the opening ceremony. But there was, I think, on social media photos of the Egyptian president, Sisi, and President Erdogan of Turkey, not the closest friends. Pictures of them shaking hands, sort of orchestrated, it seems, by the Qataris. How much is this a sort of projection of how Qatar wants to portray its role in the region as a bridge builder, as a mediator? I mean, I think the Qataris haven't uh, made it a secret that they're, they're trying to position themselves as mediators generally in conflicts throughout the region. And they've used this World Cup as a way to build some of those bridges, as a way to showcase their capabilities. They've presented it as a Middle Eastern World Cup, a Gulf World Cup, so not just a Qatari one. And that's part of their PR. It's part of their language of, you know, we're mediating. We, we're, we're not necessarily friends with everyone, but at least we're willing to talk to everyone. We're good at bringing people together. And of course, they have a track record of it as well. I mean, they've done it for Afghanistan. They've done it for several conflicts in Africa. And there's a real desire in Doha to build on this um, track record of mediation and kind of make it their flagship foreign policy effort. So can I ask about something else? 
Qatar's hosting the World Cup has come in for some unusually harsh criticism in the West. I mean, without wanting to downplay in any way some of the issues that people have focused their criticism on, so the protection of LGBTQ rights, migrant workers' rights, especially really not wanting to downplay any of that. But there seems to be no small dose of double standards to the tenor of some of the criticism. I mean, Russia's record on gay rights is atrocious. It hosted the World Cup when it was occupying a chunk of Ukraine. But how are these quite strident attacks on this year's hosts perceived in Doha and perceived more widely in the region? Well, I would say that um, they're certainly perceived as unfair in Qatar itself, because they will say, well, ever since we received news that we would host the World Cup in 2010, we have listened to the criticism and we have made certain improvements, especially in how we treat migrant workers. That said, I, I think the criticisms are generally justified, but you point at double standards, and, and that is the issue. In other words, while it's fair to criticize Qatar for the practices that continue to be of serious concern, we have not heard similar criticism at the same sort of decibel level regarding other autocratic states that have hosted the World Cup in the past. And, you know, it, we can speculate as to why that is. We can speculate, but isn't it mostly because of the part of the world they're from? Isn't that mostly it? Well, that is one aspect of it, though it's not always explicitly articulated that way. I think people are careful not to, to sound overtly racist. But it is also, Qatar is a, is a very small country. When it was elected to, to be the host, people were saying, but how can a small country like Qatar even accommodate, just as Dina was saying, uh, so many fans and build so much infrastructure in 12 years. And Qatar, of course, can do it because it has the money. But otherwise, it's not like the United States, which has hosted the, the World Cup and can just spread it out across the many stadiums in the country or in Europe um, or in other, other places where the infrastructure does exist. So there is, there's a, a sort of an envy, maybe, and a sort of disbelief that a small country such as Qatar not only can organize the World Cup, but should be allowed to, to organize the World Cup. I think also because they've managed to foster this feeling of joint ownership around the World Cup, it's also created a lot of anger and frustration amongst Arab publics that this is how the international media and generally other countries are, are perceiving the World Cup. So, for example, the BBC didn't air the opening ceremony of the World Cup. They boycotted it, even though they had no problem airing it in Russia a few years ago and airing the China-hosted Olympics a few years ago as well. And again, this created a lot of backlash on social media uh, with people speaking out and saying, you know, why is it that suddenly now these are becoming problems? So there's awareness of, of the criticism. I think many people agree that that criticism is justified. Um, they just think it's too shrill. And this also um, explains the outburst of joy at the victory of the Saudi team, um, because this was not so much support for the Saudi team directly. Maybe it was also for some people, but there's generally not a lot of public support for Saudi Arabia in their world. But what there is, is a immense pride in what Arabs can accomplish. I saw the match and it was really well deserved and uh, against, you know, the would-be world champions. Looking now then at this, the things we've talked about, I mean, this sort of celebration of the Saudi win, the, the fact that the Gulf leaders have all been in and out of Doha 
in touch with Doha quite a bit over the past few months. I mean, should we look back at the GCC spatters? I mean, was this a storm in a teacup or does it represent something more than that? Well, it's good that you ask that because um, in 2017, when the GCC breakup, in a way, happened, the, the spat between Qatar on the one side and the Emirates and Saudi Arabia on the other side, I had a, an op-ed in the New York Times in which I said precisely that, that is, that I wouldn't be surprised if this turned out to be, and I used alliteration, Richard, uh, just to improve a little bit on, on you, I said it was a tempest in a teapot. That's just pretentious. <laughs> it was good editing by the New York Times. But in any case, the point was that it looked then as if this was the kind of dispute between allies that can do quite some harm, but will not lead to, to actual conflict and can be overcome uh, given time. The one issue that I didn't discuss in the op-ed was that, but I think, and I should have, uh, was the personal aspect and the personalized aspect of the dispute. Uh, this was, to a large extent, a, a dispute between the leaders and not really uh, between the peoples. In fact, the people of these countries are quite uh, intermixed uh, through marriage and culturally and otherwise. Um, and so, um, but the leaders took, uh, or, or at least the Saudi and Emirati leaders took umbrage at what the Qatari leader uh, was, was doing. Of course, there are deeper reasons for it. Saudi Arabia doesn't like uh, the smaller Gulf states to to stand up and, and be bigger than their boots from their Saudi perspective. And Qatar certainly was doing it through all the mediation work uh, before 2011 and then after 2011, supporting the popular uprisings in the Arab world and putting its weight behind the Muslim Brotherhood in particular, which is a very sensitive issue for the Emiratis in particular. And then, of course, using Al Jazeera to magnify that voice. This was just unacceptable to these two states. They imposed an embargo together with Egypt um, and, and Bahrain. And, and in the end, it was all a, a storm in a teacup um, because the, the leaders could get together. Some steps were taken by Qatar to accommodate the concerns. But in reality, very little has changed. The only thing that really changed was that Saudi Arabia realized that it couldn't continue with this kind of conflict within the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, when its bigger enemy, Iran, is lurking from the Saudi perspective, has hegemonic ambitions from the Saudi perspective, uh, and is throwing its weight around in the region through its proxy forces. So the whole idea of having an intra-GCC conflict no longer made any sense whatsoever. And we'll come to Iran in a moment, but that's from the Saudis' perspective, the intra-GCC thing didn't make sense, particularly when its priority, its main worry was was Iran. But from the Emirati perspective, if you look at relations between the Emirates and Qatar, there are still some pretty big differences between how they see their interests in the region, and particularly the fact that the Qataris, like Turkey, generally more supportive of Muslim Brotherhood-linked or Islamist parties across the region, which the Emirates really don't like. And there is still, even though some of the region's wars have come to some degree. There's still quite a distinct difference between what the Emirates want in the region and what the what they think the, the Qataris want. Well, that's right. But at the same time, this was an, a Saudi initiative to overcome this uh, dispute. The accord that was reached was reached in Al-Ula, uh, which is an old Nabataean city in Saudi Arabia in the desert. 
it wasn't uh, done in uh, Abu Dhabi or Dubai. And the Emiratis, being a lesser player than the Saudis, given the size and the economy and everything else, uh, have, have had to come along. And I think that the Saudis have gone much further in uh, reconciling with the Qataris than, than the Emiratis have. Importantly, though, I do think that some of the foreign policy differences, the reasons why they led this blockade in the first place, I mean, they remain today. They haven't been resolved. You mentioned the one about Qatar's support of Islamism. That's a key foreign policy concern for Abu Dhabi. And, and from their perspective, Doha never addressed it. Now, that hasn't prevented them from improving their ties somewhat, but things between them remain a little bit tense. They're working on it, but, you know, like I said, the key differences are still there. Um, the other thing that I quickly wanted to jump in on was um, in terms of how populations in the Gulf experienced the split. I completely agree with Yost that they're very intermingled. There are marriages within families um, throughout the Gulf, uh, and, and there's always been a lot of back and forth between these countries. But because of that, the entire split left a bit of a bad taste in everyone's mouth. It was shocking to people in Qatar to see the way the Saudis and the Emiratis had reacted, blockaded them, closed them off, you know, really prevented some of their food supply from getting to Qatar. And again, I think this is where the World Cup will help because it will help address some of that lingering bad taste by fostering a sense of Gulf unity and identity. So I remember some years ago that relations between Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, and Mohammed bin Zayed, or MBZ as he's often called, the leader of Abu Dhabi and of the Emirates more broadly. So some years ago, relations between them were very tight. Is that still the case? Well, this is where things are starting to change. First of all, there is the, the personal aspect, once again, uh, where MBZ, the Emirati leader, was almost a mentor to MBS, who was is so much younger uh, and and his crown prince hasn't yet succeeded his father, the king. And I think that relationship has been productive from the Saudi perspective, from, from MBS's perspective. But there may be a time when he says, well, you know, I need to strike out on my own when it comes to uh, Saudi foreign policy, based also on the very particular domestic needs that Saudi Arabia as a society faces and the economic challenges. And on the economic front, um, Saudi Arabia, of course, is much bigger than the Emirates, and the economy is many times the size. Uh, they're both oil producers, but for for Saudi Arabia now, um, for the Emirates to to chart uh, an economically autonomous, let's say, course or, or almost independent course, is just as unacceptable Qatari's foreign policy was to the Saudis. And so now the Saudis are saying uh, to foreign businesses, if you want to have operations in Saudi Arabia and in the Emirates, you you will have to move your headquarters to Saudi Arabia from the Emirates. And that is really unpleasant to the Emirates, of course, because uh, that means even though the business will continue, uh, obviously the weight is going to gravitate toward Riyadh, uh, away from places like Dubai. So um, uh, all of this is, 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 is uh, a problem. And then uh, not to be forgotten is the war in Yemen where Saudi Arabia and the Emirates have been on the same side, uh, fighting uh, the Houthis, uh, who control the northern highlands, including the capital Sana'a. But they don't necessarily see eye to eye uh, about um, the, the parties that they are fighting with on their side in Yemen, uh, nor on the outcome of the war, where uh, for the Emirates, what happens in the south 
is far more important than uh, than for the Saudis who care more about the north. So um, and this has translated into alliances uh, that uh, on the ground that are at times at odds with one another, especially again when it comes to the group that is the Yemeni expression of the Muslim Brotherhood, Islah. And just to drill down a little bit on that, so broadly speaking, as you say, the Saudis have been prepared to back Islah, the Muslim Brotherhood-linked party in Yemen, when fighting the Houthis. I mean, the Saudis have backed others as well, but also Islah. The Emirates have been opposed to doing that, and instead they've backed the Southern Transitional Council, the STC in Aden, which in principle is a Southern separatist group, plus some other armed factions. They're all in principle fighting the Houthis, but sometimes you've had these clashes between groups backed by the Emiratis, groups backed by the Saudis. All that said, though, wasn't it earlier this year, the Emiratis or Emirati-backed groups that led this recent defense of Marib, this key city that the Houthis have been trying to capture? It was Emirati-backed groups that pushed the Houthis back that led to the ceasefire that's been in place for much of this year. And that ceasefire also seems to be the result of a lot of pressure behind the scenes by both the Emirates and the Saudis working together. Well, they have one common red line which is that the Houthis should not control Yemen's natural resources in the form of oil and gas. So, uh, and that is located in Ma'arib and in Hadramaut. So these, these are continue to be uh, under the control of the government, which is deeply divided internally, but uh, still there, uh, has now has a presidential council leading it. That's the internationally recognized government. And that's the internationally recognized government. So... They controlled still these resources. The Houthis are quite keen, obviously, to gain access to the, these resources or at least to the revenue. That is currently being negotiated, in fact, between the Saudis and the and the Houthis. So, um, but this is something where the Emiratis and the Saudis can can agree because they realize that if the Houthis control the resources, then they control Yemen, and then that essentially would open up Yemen to uh, a projection of power by Iran more than what we've seen already. Uh, and going to the borders of Oman, uh, so the GCC, going to the borders of Saudi Arabia, of course. I think also the conflict in Yemen is a good example of general Saudi-Emirati interactions in their foreign policy. You can see that they don't necessarily see eye to eye on certain things. They agree on certain things. They can be pragmatic and work together when they need to. And then when they can't really work together, rather than openly coming out against one another, they'll tend to work against each other behind the scenes which at times they did in Yemen, for example, as you outlined, when the Saudis were with Isla and the Emiratis were throwing their support behind the STC. That doesn't prevent them from them coming back together and working together if they need to. It's just the way their relationship works. It's not also because the Saudis and Emiratis have different priorities. For the Saudis, the big threat, as they perceive it, is Iran with the Muslim Brotherhood sort of coming in quite a ways after that. But for the Emiratis, really the Muslim Brotherhood, political Islam is the big threat around too. But generally, it's a different threat perception, different priorities. So I think you're right on the Saudi side. Yes, definitely, Iran is a threat, uh, a real foreign policy priority for the Saudis. On the Emirati side, I think the two, Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamism generally, kind of go hand in hand in terms of threats to the UAE. It just depends what the context is in terms of which one they prioritize. So let's come on then to Iran. How are Riyadh and Abu Dhabi viewing some of the stuff that's happened over the past few months? So first, of course, the protests. 
led especially, but not only by women, especially sort of young women, young Iranians, being met, it seems now, by this brutal crackdown. So first, the protests, plus what appears to be the collapse of the Iran nuclear talks. How is all that viewed in Saudi and the Emirates? I think they're watching very carefully and they're being very cautious about their assessments of the protests in Iran for now. They have the same level of insight as everybody else because Iranian society is a very opaque and closed one right now and it's hard to get information out. But they're watching it closely. They're afraid of both scenarios. They're afraid of no change because obviously working with the Islamic Republic for them has been fraught with complications. But they're also afraid of change because right now they don't know what could come next. So they're just being very careful uh, and they're being very cautious about the assessments that they make. There has been a lot of accusations coming from Iran leveled at Saudi Arabia for their funding of media outlets covering some of the protests. And so tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia have increased somewhat since the protests have broken out. Uh, but generally, I think the Saudis and the Emiratis aren't quite sure what to make of it for now. And the collapse of the nuclear talks, I mean, in the past, Saudis, Emiratis, not huge supporters of the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, but does that necessarily mean they welcome the, the collapse of the talks? Well, they, they, they weren't huge supporters of the JCPOA because the JCPOA is a nuclear deal. And what they care about more than global proliferation of nuclear weapons, which obviously is a concern for the United States, Russia, China, you know, the P5 and Germany that negotiated the JCPOA with Iran is Iran's regional power projection because this threatens them uh, at the core from their perspective because Iran has close alliance, has, has fostered close alliances with non-state actors in Lebanon and in Yemen uh, and in Iraq and it uh, is closely aligned with the Syrian regime as well. Uh, against the protesters there. So it is this that they felt was excluded from the nuclear deal in 2015. It was firewalled uh, off from these other concerns that they had. And then when, after uh, President Trump uh, threw out the nuclear deal and then President Biden said he wanted to go back to it, they said, but let's not make the same mistake as before. Uh, we need to address these issues. And the Biden administration signaled that it was sensitive to that demand. But in practice, the negotiations have again been limited strictly to the nuclear aspect. At the same time, the administration has made a greater effort to brief both Israel and the Gulf Arab states consistently about the state of the negotiations as they uh, progressed or now as they have gotten stuck, of course. In some ways, I mean, tell me if this is wrong. It wasn't just that the nuclear deal didn't cover Iran's regional power projection. It was that in Saudi eyes, the nuclear deal by lifting some of the sanctions actually, again, according to Riyadh, made some of those things worse, it sort of emboldened Iran in the region. Now, you can find arguments against that, but that is sort of the view from Riyadh. So, as you say, there's this hope that if there is a return to the JCPOA, it would then lead to follow-on talks on Iran's regional role. I mean, it, there's some difficulties to that. Obviously, there's a reason that that stuff hasn't been part of the nuclear negotiations. It's very challenging, but still, that's the hope. But I guess, you know, with the nuclear talks looking as though they're not going anywhere now, the question for the Gulf monarchies is, can they sort of try to reach some sort of understanding with Iran that gets to their main security concerns without the nuclear deal? Or is that even harder? 
I think both the Saudis and the Emiratis a little while ago made the strategic decision that no matter what happens on the nuclear deal, that they were going to do what they could to deal with the Iranian threat themselves. And so they kind of developed a what could be perceived as a pretty logical two-pronged foreign policy of continuing containment of Iran as much as they possibly can, and then adding to that engagement of Iran. And so they've set up these two bilateral tracks with Iran where they're talking to it. For now, it's not leading to much, but it is working to de-escalate some of the tensions amongst themselves. Um, and, and this engagement is very much part of their decision to deal with the threat themselves in a context where the U.S. is perceived to be leaving the region. It was time for them to take matters into their own hands. And this is where the, the, the talks with Iran come in. And have those talks been going anywhere since Iranian President uh, Ibrahim Raisi, so a sort of harder line, Iranian government came to power in Iran a year and a half ago? It depends which one we're talking about. I think the Emirati track um, is certainly perceived as a successful track insofar as it has worked quite well to de-escalate tensions between Iran and the Emiratis. Um, so in the aftermath, for example, of the Houthi strikes uh, in the UAE in January and February of this year, um, that that back channel was was working quite actively and it and it arguably worked quite well to ensure that there was no escalation of after that. Um, on the Saudi track, it's a little bit more complicated. They're using it to de-escalate, but at the same time, both sides want more out of it. The Saudis want the Iranians uh, to make some some significant concessions in Yemen. Um, they want the Iranians to stop arming the Houthis. The Iranians want to reestablish diplomatic ties with the Saudis. Uh, and now, uh, following the outbreak of the protests in Iran, they also want Saudi to stop involving itself, at least the way that they see it as, as the Saudis, to stop funding and involving themselves in, in those protests in Iran. Um, so there, so both sides want something, but neither side can really get to what they want. But they have both decided to maintain that track, despite the growing frustrations, despite the lack of progress, which in itself is a good thing. Having said that, there hasn't been a round um, of Iran-Saudi talks in, in several months now. We'll get straight back to the conversation with Dean and Yost, but I want to take a moment just to recommend a podcast to listeners of Hold Your Fire. It's called Global Dispatches. It's a long-running international affairs show hosted by veteran journalist Mark Leon Goldberg. Mark interviews experts on key events and issues driving world affairs, and that often includes our own experts, experts from Crisis Group. If you like Hold Your Fire, you'll certainly appreciate Global Dispatches. You can find Global Dispatches, world news that matters, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And so we'll talk about US-Saudi relations in a moment. But before we do that, could we just talk a little bit about Israel and whether the recent election, so the election that looks likely to see Benjamin Netanyahu return to power at the head of, I think, the furthest right coalition that's ever uh, ruled Israel. So relations, broadly speaking, between Israel and the Emirates and the Saudis have been improving. So the Emirates in particular normalized diplomatic relations as part of the Abram Accords. The Saudis haven't, but still relations seem to have improved. How are Gulf capitals viewing sort of prospects of Netanyahu's uh, return and all that might entail for Israel's policy towards the Palestinians? Well, keep in mind that the agreement, the Abraham Accords between 
Israel and the Emirates in particular, also Israel and Bahrain, Israel and Morocco, Israel and Sudan. This agreement was a strategic decision and was negotiated with Netanyahu when he was prime minister before. So his return itself is not going to alarm them. What may alarm them somewhat is that the uh, elections in, in Israel resulted in a governing coalition that is farther to the right than it has ever been and includes high-level politicians who are uh, explicitly racist. Now, this itself, uh, the fact that these people may end up in powerful positions, in, including in the security establishment, this, this could lead to uh, an increase in tensions in the occupied territories, for example, in Palestine, uh, or in relations with Iran. But beyond that, it may be more uncomfortable for an Arab country to be associated with a government that is at times overtly racist in its relations with Arabs. And I think what, what the Emirates in particular are concerned about is not so much the Palestinians. I don't think that they ever really cared about the occupied territories and were very frustrated with the Palestinian leadership, which is understandable because it's inept and obsolete in many ways. But they care about what happens at the Haram al-Sharif, at the Holy Esplanade in, in Jerusalem, where Muslims and Jews and Christians uh, congregate often in the same uh, narrow spaces. And if these right-wing politicians push forward with their ambition to control that space for Jews and uh, openly uh, organize Jewish prayers there, then I think you can see uh, an explosion again, not the first time, at the Holy Esplanade. And then what would the Emirates do? What would Bahrain do? What would Morocco do? Because uh, that is something that is not related strictly to Palestinians, but to the Islamic world, which is, of course, uh, extends even beyond the Middle East. So that is their concern. But otherwise, the relationship, they want to normalize relations with Israel. They have uh, an important security relationship. They want to improve economic relations and tourism. But they must have some anxiety about what could happen under this particular government when it's formed uh, under Netanyahu. And it doesn't seem likely that Saudi Arabia will sign up to the Abraham Accords anytime soon, right? But still, relations between Riyadh and Israel have been improving, in part because of the shared enemy they perceive in Iran. Well, that's right. Well, first of all, the Saudis are doing what the Emiratis were doing before the Abraham Accords, which is to improve their relations with Israel uh, out of the public eye. So again, this is a strategic decision on the part of all the Gulf Arab states. To openly normalize relations with Israel is very difficult for the Saudis for any number of reasons. Uh, first of all, the king was the initiator of the Arab Peace Initiative uh, back in 2000, uh, 2002. And, um, uh, and, and it was reasserted even recently at the UN General Assembly meeting in September of this year in New York. So it's a Saudi uh, ownership really, of that initiative in the Arab world and in the Muslim world. And so so they don't want to jettison that just now. Um, and certainly the crown prince uh, couldn't do that. Uh, now, once the crown prince becomes king, the situation may change. But he would have two things on his mind. One is he would want to have a good deal where he could get some kind of not normalization with Israel alone, but with normalization within the world or re-legitimization. Because after the Khashoggi murder, he has been ostracized. And secondly, he has to be concerned about the Saudi population, which is, you know, uh, for the majority indigenous, unlike the Emirati population, which is a very small indigenous population. And so um, that population is not necessarily 
agreeing with this whole normalization with Israel business. So all of that makes it very difficult. Now, when it comes to Iran, yes, the Gulf states, as Dina also made very clear, are, are very worried about Iran and its power projection in the region. Um, so is Israel. And uh, for Israel, it's critically important that they find alliances other than just with the United States, which offers its uh, security umbrella, with the Gulf Arab states in order to form some kind of anti-Iran alliance. But on this point, the Gulf states uh, demur. They don't want to be part of any alliance that is expressly confronting I Iran. They prefer, as Dina said, uh, to engage with Iran, to keep open channels of communication. And they were very vocal, actually, in making that clear in the aftermath of uh, President Biden's visit to the region, where there was some hope, or at least there seemed to be th some hope on the US side and on the Israeli side, that the Gulf Arabs might join them in setting up this Middle Eastern NATO, or at least express support for it. But actually, uh, you saw the leadership both in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE come out and very explicitly state that they would not support any alliance that targeted any state, referring specifically to Iran. Let's talk then about Saudi-US relations. And as we heard up top, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. President Biden using this very strong language uh, during his campaign about the crown prince, capturing what was quite a bit of anger in Washington at the time about the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, anger at the Yemen war as well, probably hardly helps that MBS was perceived as being close to Trump. Then on coming to office, the Biden administration released this intelligence report, which basically fingered the crown prince for the Khashoggi killing. Then this past year came the attempt to repair relations, largely as we heard up top, motivated by wanting to get more Saudi oil onto the markets to keep the oil prices low. But that hasn't happened. And just a few weeks ago came this OPEC plus decision not to increase production, not to help lower oil prices, which obviously the Saudis didn't want. So where do things stand now between the US and Riyadh? So they stand in a very uh, uncomfortable place, I would say, because from the Saudi perspective, and we were there shortly after the hubbub over the OPEC plus decision and, and Washington's reaction, they couldn't quite understand. And I think it was sincere on the part of the officials we spoke to in the foreign ministry. They were quite surprised, if not shocked, about the vehemence of the American reaction, because there clearly was a disagreement. But there was also the idea or the notion that there was an agreement to disagree over the uh, oil production. Um, the Saudis have made very clear over time that in order to realize their vision 2030, which is really um, the foundation of their effort to diversify their economy away from the over-reliance on hydrocarbons, that in order to, to accomplish that by 2030, they would need to, uh, to have a stable oil price that is at least $75 a barrel and preferably quite a bit more. Um, and the war in Ukraine led to changes in the, in the world economy, of course, and a shortage of oil. And so for the United States, it became critically important that uh, Russian oil be replaced by other sources and that therefore production should go up in the case of Saudi Arabia and other major Gulf oil producers. So they're directly at, uh, working at cross-purposes, essentially. Now, again, was this particular hiccup 
necessary? Probably the answer is no. It could have been averted if the OPEC plus decision could have been delayed by a month, which is what the Americans had asked for, beyond the midterm elections in the United States. Because, of course, the Biden administration was worried that the high gasoline prices at the pump in the United States would play against the Democratic Party in the elections. Um, and the Saudis didn't go along with that, clearly. And that was seen as a particular betrayal, as a slight in Washington, and hence the vehemence of the response. But the issue is not going to go away. The Saudis continue to want to have this oil price at a certain minimum level, uh, if not above it. And um, and the Americans are continuing to want to uh, bring more oil onto the market to marginalize Russian oil, because Russia now has to sell discounted oil to China, for example. So there's this idea in Washington that this was really a betrayal, as you say, a slight, maybe even a personal thing between the crown prince and President Biden just ahead of the midterms, you know, hardly helped, plus siding with Russia. But even if you don't buy that version, even if you accept that actually it was more about the oil prices, Saudi's economic ambitions, even if you accept that, still Riyadh must have realised how this would go down in the US. It seems that American officials had made that clear beforehand and that Riyadh was prepared to live with the consequences rather than, as you say, put off the decision by a few weeks. Well, in the end, I think... And there's, this is a matter of dispute and, and some unclarity. Um, when we spoke to American officials and we spoke to Saudi officials, it's unclear. They have different versions of this. Uh, from the American perspective, it should have been possible to uh, hold off for a month. From the Saudi perspective, that was not possible because Saudi Arabia is not the only OPEC Plus member. It's certainly uh, the most powerful one, probably, because it produces 10% of the world's uh, oil. So from the American perspective, this could have been done differently. In the end, we don't know exactly what was decided inside the royal palace in Riyadh. It was also portrayed in the US as Saudi Arabia taking sides with Russia in the war with Ukraine, which I think is a, is an unfair criticism. Um, I see the personal aspect I can see. There is a, possibly a basis for it. But again, we don't know exactly what happened in the royal palace. We know that uh, the CIA director, Bill Burns, spoke with the Crown Prince two days before the OPEC Plus decision was made and apparently came away with the notion that Saudi Arabia would not take this decision at this time. But regardless, I would say again that for Saudi Arabia, this is in the end a strategic issue. Ultimately, though, I think, Richard, you're absolutely right when you say they they were pursuing their own interests, their own economic interests in making this decision. But that doesn't mean that they had not thought about the potential backlash in the US, I think they were prepared to live with the consequences of their decision. That much was clear. And that's kind of a symbol for what the relationship between the US and Saudi Arabia is shaping up to be and is likely to be in the foreseeable future. And the same could be said to a certain extent of the UAE, two countries that are becoming increasingly independent, increasingly assertive, increasingly pursuing their own interests in their foreign policy, even when the pursuit of those interests goes against what their biggest security guarantor, most significant partner wants. And that's a new reality in this relationship that I think both sides over time have to learn to live with. In the end, though, don't both the Saudis and the US need each other, not based on shared values in the way that the US has with NATO allies, some of its Asian allies, but still need each other. I mean, the Saudis depend in the end on the US for their security, particularly against Iran. Now, Riyadh has been 
disappointed over the past few years, even under President Trump, who was a more enthusiastic supporter of the Saudis than Biden, when there were these presumably Iranian strikes on the oil facilities Aramco a few years ago. Other incidents involving Iran, the US didn't come to the Saudis' aid in the way that Riyadh hoped they would. But for all that disappointment, the US is still the Saudis' security guarantor. And for the US, the US still needs the Saudis for right now for the oil on the markets, although they're not getting that. But even beyond the oil, the US still values the relationship with the Saudis for counterterrorism cooperation and for helping contain Iran. So how far can the relationship really sink despite all the upset in both capitals? Ultimately, both sides continue to need each other for now. So we're not going to find ourselves in a situation where suddenly there's going to be a major rupture in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the US. But there are going to be hiccups along the road and there are going to be difficulties and complications in communications. Um, much of what we've seen over the last few months has been exactly that. Um, and you're likely to see more of that as the Saudis become more assertive, more independent. Now, yes, the US is their main security guarantor right now. But as you rightly pointed out, They've been disappointed. They feel the U.S. is not necessarily a security partner they can rely on. And so they've made a real effort to diversify their partnerships, to build new partnerships with countries, not just Western countries, although uh, with Europe as well, but with Russia, with China, with other Asian countries. Um, and they've also uh, plowed money into developing their own capabilities. You can say that a little bit more for the UAE than you can for the Saudis. Um, but nevertheless, they've, they've really diversified their partnerships in order to make up for the fact that they perceive the US as being a less reliable partner. I mean, they've diversified, certainly in terms of their economic relations, looking especially to China and to Asia more broadly. They've diversified in their diplomatic relations. Like many countries, they've voted to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine in the General Assembly, but generally not wanted to pick a side in the Ukraine war. They've kept good relations with Ukraine, but also you need to keep close ties to Russia as part of OPEC+. Plus. They have this shared interest in high oil prices. But in security, I mean, in the end, the security guarantees, particularly against Iran, but for now, they don't really have another option except the US for those, right? Notwithstanding all the frustration. It's harder to diversify, but they've tried nevertheless. They've started buying weapons from other countries. I mean, the Emiratis have bought drones from the Chinese, which they then used in Yemen um, for several years. Uh, there are systems, uh, entire weapon systems that from the perspective of the Saudis and the Emiratis, they would rather stay with the US, but sometimes the, the uh, procurement um, set up from the US is so complicated. Sales take so long. It's so burdensome. And then there are so many additional requirements placed on the Gulf Arab states once these sales go through that, that there are questions being asked within the UAE and within Saudi Arabia about, you know, maybe we should be spending more of our money, um, buying weapons from other countries. Uh, and again, you know, people talk about Russia and China. Obviously, Russia in the aftermath of the Ukraine war looks like a less, um, interesting weapons provider. But you have others. You have European states that are also, um, selling weapons to the Gulf Arab states. It's not the same thing as having a security guarantee from the US, uh, for sure. But when you talk to them, they'll say, yeah, but that security guarantee right now doesn't seem to be worth very much. So I think some of that obviously is, is posturing, uh, but it does help you understand how they think about that partnership with the US. I think it's mostly posturing because it's not about the arms sales, really. Um, because the, the, the thing is that there is uh, interoperability 
um, uh, with the United States um, when it comes to weaponry, especially the major types. So the Emirates and the Saudis remain very reliant on the United States for those weapons. In addition, the United States is the security guarantor of last resort, and they cannot do anything about that, much though they might want to. Frankly, there is no alternative even on the horizon. China is far from uh, being ready to insert itself politically and militarily into the region. So I think it's posturing, it is bargaining, maybe, and it is waiting for a more sympathetic administration to arrive in the White House that could change things somewhat. I don't think there will be a dramatic change because both Republican and Democratic administrations have shown uh, willingness to take some distance from the Gulf, and and they both want to reduce uh, the U.S.'s military footprint around the world. That is a long-term trend. And yes. You mentioned earlier that Mohammed bin Salman sort of wants respectability, wants to be welcomed back into the club of leaders. And certainly he aspires to be a modern G20 leader, maybe even more than he aspires to play the traditional role that Saudi Arabia has played as an Arab leader. But has MBS really been so much of a pariah after Khashoggi's killing? I mean, people have turned the page quite quickly. You know, what UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited uh, Saudi Arabia, what, last year, French President Emmanuel Macron has been now, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, now Biden, of course. And those were the Western leaders that were you know, arguably most upset about Khashoggi's killing. I mean, obviously, Erdogan also played it up as it happened in Turkey. But few other leaders around the world much changed their relations with him. And now it seems that even Western capitals are, are turning the page. So isn't he sort of already seen as a respectable part of the G20 club? So, Richard, you're right. You know, there have been fist bumps all around, but there are two sides to this. One is that, uh, obviously, from the Western side, nobody really wants to alienate Saudi Arabia as a country. They may not like Mohammed bin Salman, but they do realize that sooner or later he's going to be king and he will be around for quite some time because he's still fairly young. The fact that uh, there is still a lot of animus directed towards the crown prince is because there is still a lot of media attention that wants to keep alive the case of Jamal Khashoggi um, and, and, and similar practices, the arrest of uh, and detention for long periods of time of some uh, Saudi women, including British and American citizens, um, for criticizing the kingdom for various uh, practices. And now in the last few days, there have been executions uh, that had uh, stopped before and that have come back. So so there's all kinds of ways to criticize Saudi Arabia. And this criticism actually went back to 9-11 because of the, the number of Saudi citizens who were on the planes that crashed into the towers in New York and the Pentagon in, in, uh, in Washington. So that animus has, has been building up over a long time. The other side is that whatever is being done to um, restore some kind of respectability to Mohammed bin Salman, I think he feels personally offended, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, and I think to, to a great extent wrongly, about how he has been treated um, um, because of the Khashoggi murder. And so he personally feels that um, he is still ostracized and he is going to continue to strive to overcome that. So one thing is to say that MBS is wrong to feel that he's been subject to overly harsh criticism, that actually it's merited. And certainly all the coverage that you talked about, about Jamal Khashoggi's brutal murder, 
Also, the Yemen war, I mean, plenty to criticise there, these terrible tactics that have led to immense civilian suffering, but also uh, an intervention that hasn't really served Saudi's interest getting bogged down there. So there's plenty to criticise the Crown Prince about. But isn't there also a side to him that sometimes gets lost, that he is actually a reformer in Saudi Arabia? And sure, the vision 2030 may not all come off, but he has been prepared to take a hard look at the country's economy, at its economic future, and try to drag it forward. There is that side to him too, right? And it is sometimes overlooked. Well, this is true. And he has opened up the social space in Saudi Arabia. Um, and this this is experienced by Saudi youth in particular as a great step forward. So while he imprisons those who are clamoring for an opening up of social space in Saudi Arabia, he has himself taken the initiative to do so. And so when I said earlier that, you know, he's going to be around for some time, this is more likely because of the steps that he has taken. He may not be able to succeed in diversifying the Saudi economy anytime soon, or at least to the extent that that would be necessary given the Green Revolution. But what he has done domestically in terms of building a new constituency in support of his policies, I think he's done quite well. And that, again, suggests that Saudi Arabia is a country that we will continue to have to reckon with in the future. And importantly, it's bought him a lot of bonus points amongst the population within Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, we look at him from outside as somebody who has done all the things that you've outlined. So, um, you know, the war in Yemen hasn't hasn't been good. Saudi foreign policy has been questionable. Um, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But Saudis inside Saudi Arabia um, like what he's doing by and large, of course, not completely, but by and large, what he's doing in terms of freeing up the social space. And so he's a popular leader inside Saudi Arabia. They like that they can go to coffee shops now, that they don't have to, the women don't have to be fully covered, that the women can work, that women can drive, that all of these are steps that he's taken that have had a very real tangible impact on the daily lives of Saudis. And that's important. So, as you both said, it seems very likely that Mohammed bin Salman will be around for a while, whether you want to play up his reformist side or some of his missteps. He's at once assertive, like many other leaders of middle powers, while also you know, himself navigating a world that's changing fast. So the US's evolving role that we talked about, the big power rivalries, the sort of US tensions with China and Russia, the advantages and sort of some of the uncertainties of multipolarity and energy transition, obviously. But if you're sitting in Washington. I mean, in some ways, the past few years could be seen as a bit sobering. No? I mean, Biden comes to power thinking he can isolate, ostracize Mohammed bin Salman, even Riyadh more broadly. That didn't work, obviously. And whether it would have done even absent the Ukraine war isn't really clear. Yet anger in Riyadh obviously runs quite deep in Washington. It doesn't take much to set off these sort of furious accusations. So how does Washington navigate a relationship. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a more transactional element to it. Obviously, Riyadh is going to want to diversify its relations. There aren't the shared values that Washington has with some of its other allies. But how should Washington manage its relations with a country, with a leader that's the source of some frustration, but still an important partner? You know, Washington has, has a long history of um, dealing with what they would see as unsavory autocrats. Um, think of Iraq uh, in the you know in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. Um, uh, so so or, or the Shah of Iran for that matter, um, and many other cases throughout the world. 
So um, I don't think it's a management problem so much. These emotional swings will happen. And the question is more, how can the Saudis uh, deal, deal with it from their side? Uh, because the impact is much greater in Saudi Arabia than it is in the United States, generally speaking, given the uh, economic imbalance between the two and the military imbalance. So, so um, these relationships can, can be managed. Um, will there be happiness? No, there won't be. Um, but um, then that's the, the world we live in. I think also it's about adjusting the way that you think about the relationship. It's no longer just a relationship where the U.S. tells the Saudis and, and others in the Gulf what they want and expect a result. It's going to be one of bargaining and discussion and engagement with a partner that should be seen a little bit more equally than perhaps they were in the past. At least I think that's what the Saudis wants. There can't be an expectation that when the U.S. says jump, the Saudis will jump. Joost, Dina, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, Richard. It was a pleasure. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Gulf, on regional politics more broadly, on everything else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, as ever, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org, or write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions, questions, or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Enjoy the football for those of you who watch, and I very much hope you'll join us again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.